0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, it is a delight to see you today. You look luminescent. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Great to be back, Owen, on a beautiful sunny morning in lockdown. Yes, it is. We are recording this on September 1st. It's a Wednesday Wednesdays are our days for podcasts, although we do tend to stray outside of those every now and again.
1: I don't think we stick to most of the rules we set ourselves.
0: <laughs> yes, we we don't. Is the, the yes that is correct? Uh, we do have ground plans and or ground plans if you're from Adelaide, and um, we don't really tend to stick to them. So we've got a few questions that have come through this this month. You can ask your questions by jumping into the Rask Australia Facebook community which anyone can get to via the show notes. um, And we hope everyone gets to it via the show notes. The other thing that you can do, if you're so inclined, is send us an email, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at rask.com.au. That's rask, R-A-S-K, dot Full disclosure from Kate and I, we love hearing from you, but we have a lot of questions that come via email. So it's probably easier if you do it via the Facebook community, because then others can help you out as well. And it also makes it, we can give you quick responses. You'll find that with this month, there was a question that came through the Facebook community and Kate actually asked one of our analysts to answer the question um, via our internal Slack channel, which was then put into the group. So that is a great way to get some questions answered. Um, Obviously we have our websites as well, but that's how you do it. Kate, we've got to do the disclaimer before we get into these wonderful questions. And we've got some questions on net worth. We've got issuing shares, when companies issue shares, crossing over with VDHG, share buybacks and tax, lots of good stuff. Um, The disclaimer is, if Kate and I answer a question, it's limited to general financial advice only. That's because we haven't taken into account anyone's needs, goals, or objectives, which are the things that a financial planner would take into account when they give you advice. So anything that we say, Is not specific to you your needs goals or objectives so always seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional if you are confused or before you act on the information and if you're investing in an etf always read that thing called a pds which we've done a video on product disclosure statement available on the issuer's website we're going to be talking about vanguard etfs today so go to vanguard's website and read their pds cool kate that was a long intro
1: that was a, it sounds like you've rehearsed that skill, Owen. It was just rolling off the tongue there.
0: Yes. Well, we do have a proclivity for long introductions, Kate. So now over to you. What is the first question? Bring it on.
1: Yeah. So the first question was from Naomi via our podcast email, and it's about calculating your personal net worth. So Naomi wrote in to say that She's been listening to our podcast for a while now, and they've really helped to learn and understand about the financial world. Thanks, guys. There is one topic I would like you to both discuss and elaborate on, which is the topic of net worth. Could you talk about this concept, how to calculate it, and the importance of it for personal finance? Thanks.
0: Naomi, love the question. Thank you so much. And it's not one we've had before,
1: so I thought it was a really good one to start with today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, nothing cryptic about it. It was just straight up wonderful question. So Naomi, kudos to you. And um this is interesting, you know, why Kate because for some reason when you're in finance and you do like podcasts and you have like 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 we do, one of the most popular things that people tend to do when they get your name is they then go name net worth. And yeah. I do this with like celebrities too, like <laughs> I, I'm Matthew like, McConaughey, net worth. That's net what worth. I was typing in the just other re- day. He just wrote a book, net worth. Um, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, net worth.
1: And people have actually been searching Owen's net
0: worth because exactly. it's one of like, the most frequently
1: That's, searched things on It's Google. the second <laughs>
0: thing after my name. And yeah. I'm like, And you've got a pretty unique ouch. name, so it
1: is probably you.
0: <laughs> it's probably, yeah, well, yeah. I, I haven't met another one, another Owen Raskovich anywhere in the world. I've read, come across some Raskoviches that actually added me on LinkedIn, but um that's a story for next time so the key here is breaking this what this phrase net worth into two The, the second thing makes sense worth so what's something worth typically when we talk about people because we have property rights here in australia kate studying a jd thank you very much property rights mean that you own something so it might be a house your shares a business whatever so that's the worth part you add up what the house is worth what the shares are worth what your business is worth, if you own it all, what your bar of gold is worth that you've buried in the backyard and probably forgotten about. And then the first word is net. So the net worth means once we add up what everything is worth, if you could sell it today, what is the debt or the liability with that? So if you have a house worth a million dollars and you have a loan of 500, a million minus 500 is 500 in equity. That's the net worth of that house. And that's that's all there is to it. But, you know, there's a common misconception that, and I think this is where a lot of these people that come up with the, the calculations for the celebrities get it wrong, is they often think that they often don't know if the celebrity's business or personally they have a lot of debt. So they don't know exactly. They just go off what they kind of pick up from interviews mm-hmm. or here and there, and they kind of come up with a best guess figure. So it's always important to check that. Um, But Kate, the question from Naomi was about about not only what is it, but does it matter and how do you do it? So maybe you've pre-prepared something. So how do you do it? How do you think about it?
1: Yeah, so I think net worth is a helpful tool in sort of tracking your progress towards your financial goals. But it's also a very personal thing as well. And there's a lot of discussions about whether you should include your primary residence in your net worth or your superannuation or your HECS. So everyone has different opinions. And at the end of the day, it's working out a system that works for you. And I think it's really important to remember that your net worth doesn't equal your self worth. And your net worth could right now be a negative number. And that's okay. But it's sort of understanding where you currently sit and where you want to go. And whether it's making right now after this podcast, if you want to just get an idea of where you currently sit, writing out a list of all your assets, all of those, all of your shares, your super, maybe you own a property, just big long list, maybe your collectibles, whatever you think has has a monetary value. And then writing out a list of your liabilities. Maybe you've got an afterpay debt, you've got a mortgage, you've got a hex debt, you may want to, I mean, some people would consider that as a liability in terms of calculating your net worth. And then you can I mean, I use a spreadsheet each month and that makes it really easy for me. But yeah, you can do it as simply as just writing down your assets, adding it up, writing down your liabilities, adding it up and subtracting the liabilities from the assets. And that's you can work out what is your current net worth.
0: Yeah. Um, just re- Can you repeat that line there? I think there was a bit of gold that may have got lost in that, that response. What was that, that thing that you said?
1: Uh, your net worth doesn't equal your self-worth. And I think it's really important not to let that oh. number trap you
0: there it is folks
1: in comparison or not feeling like you might be saying oh at the age of 30 i should have a net worth of something and so i think it can it's a good number to know but it can also hold you back if you get fixated on it
0: yeah i think it's a really interesting exercise to go through uh, as you do every now and again if you want to go through, it's not a vanity project necessarily. It can actually just help you understand the levers hmm. of wealth. Like I've got too much debt. I don't have enough assets. I've got too many liabilities. I'm buying too many TVs and not spending enough on my share portfolio. You know, all of these, I bought this gold, which is actually wasting, you know, time in the backyard when I should have bought shares in Apple. You know, you can actually kind of think about it that way and you can critique yourself. I probably wouldn't do it every month in fact i don't actually do it at all but if i was going to do it i would do it probably once a year i think that's kind of like that'd be a happy medium for me in terms of once a year sitting down did my net wealth go up did it not um i i think it's actually a pretty interesting exercise personally i'm not the type of i'm not the type of person that would post it on social media i think some people do that totally it depends what you're comfortable with we get pretty intimate on this podcast in terms of what we talk about and the details but um yeah, I mean, each to their own there, I would say, you know, the thing for me, if I do share some of my own experience is that we have a a house, it has some equity. Um, we have a share portfolio, we have supers, but the big, big, big thing for us is in our business. Um, and you know, I would say that 90% of my net worth is in the business, the RASC business. So and that can change. Like last year, we almost went broke because of some ridiculous things. And this year, things seem to be going really well. So the value of the company is worth a lot more this year than it was last year, right? On paper. On paper. But it doesn't actually mean anything. Mm. Like it, it doesn't actually mean anything. So it hasn't made me any happier or less happy. It's just what it is. So it doesn't equal self-worth, as you say, Kate. I think that's right on. Um, a spreadsheet would be cool. Maybe we can include that in one of the courses that we do in the future. But yeah, um, and
1: I think it's it's a good way to track your progress over many years. And I mean, mm-hmm. I've been using I had a look at it the other day in preparation for this episode. But I've been using the same Google Sheet since twenty seventeen when I started getting my financial <laughs> act together. And I just have um, rows with a date on them, and then lots of columns for different assets and liabilities. And that's obviously gotten longer and longer over time as I've closed one account and opened another. So it sort of keeps expanding this spreadsheet, but I used to do it, especially at the start when I was on the first few thousand dollars and just getting started with investing and saving and building my emergency fund. I'd check in my net worth almost monthly. and um, so like back in 2017, 2018, I was just like, I was doing a check-in every month and, um, oh my gosh, my portfolio has gone up by a couple of hundred dollars. That was super exciting. But now I think, I don't know if that's sort of been busy and COVID, I've automated a lot. I've got, I put in a really good plan at the start of every year and break it down monthly. So I'm more focused on my monthly investing and savings goals. And I, at the moment, I I realized I hadn't checked in with this spreadsheet for quite a number of months now. And so it's probably, for me, dropped back to more of a quarterly or a half yearly check-in. And I guess that's probably as I've gained a bit more experience, I understand a little bit more about what I'm doing than when I first started, that it it's not really a huge factor anymore. It's like, am I reaching my savings and investing goals each month? Am I reaching my other goals? I'm not too concerned about the net worth number because I know that will work itself out if I hit all my other goals. And it's much easier to manage on a month-by-month basis. And especially as your portfolio starts to grow, looking at your net worth can be a bit scary if the market drops back by 20%. Um, That figure can go from $100,000 to $80,000 or $70,000. And that can be a bit scary. Like Suddenly, you're worth on paper $30,000 less than you were a month ago. And so, Definitely during March last year, I just did not calculate my net worth and um, I pr- that was probably quite good. It meant I didn't touch things
0: or muck around with my portfolio. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's easy to get fooled to think that um, having a higher net worth is going to bring you more happiness. I don't necessarily think that's true. A lot of the studies that have been shown about incomes and wealth actually show that um, that there's definitely a ceiling in terms of your net worth. So, you know, don't always necessarily live your life according to what the spreadsheet tells you because that mm-hmm. may not bring you the most happiness. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, it's a bit of sophistry if people tell you that it maybe isn't the case, um, you know, that you need to focus on your, your net worth in order to be happier. Um, it's definitely like an like example for me is it hasn't made me any happier well, I mean, it has because then I've still got a job, but it hasn't necessarily made me any happier knowing that our business is worth more mm. if we were to sell it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't impact me. And I think two great resources that I'll shout out to here is Dividends Down Under, which is a blog run by Mr. and Mrs. DDU, um, Dividends Down Under. And the other one is Aussie Firebug, uh, Matt, who has a podcast, talks about net worth. Um, the things to keep in mind with net worth, one final caveat i'll have is that a lot of the times net worth is talked about in the realm of property so people using property as a vehicle to create net wealth on paper or net worth that's not always the best thing to think about because it you you often use a lot of leverage or debt to buy a property which it can amplify the results um there's a thing in investing called a j curve which looks like a j and what it means to your point earlier on kate is that at first you have to go down the J before you can come back up really steeply. Um, mm. So you, you invest money and you invest in yourself and you, you go into debt or you do all these things and then all of a sudden you come out of it, it hits the bottom of the J and then it goes up. It's called a J curve. And in finance, um, what it means is it's kind of like a reflection of the commitment that it takes to grow over the long term is you have to go down mm. the J to then come up the other side. Another analogy is a hockey stick, which is like a compound interest table. You see a hockey stick lying on its side then all of a sudden it just flicks up at the end. Um, and that's compound interest. You save, you save, you save, you save, you save. And then all of a sudden it's growing and it takes off. Mm. And so, it's like
1: people say the first 100K is the hardest. Yep. The I, it takes million. a long time. Well, I'm not quite.
0: <laughs> first 10 million for K. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's just say like the first 100K. Um, it takes a long time, like many years of saving and investing. For most people to get to that point. But once you get to that point, you do start to see um, compounding really start to take effect and your saving and investing starts to um, really be a lot more worth it. Um, and you get yep.
0: to see some more results, which is really nice. I'll give you a red hot tip. If you're still aiming for your first five or 10 or 50K or 100K, make sure this is a, a quote straight from Glenn James, who runs the My Millennial podcast um, is get a bigger shovel. Making sure that you'll get a job that brings in more money, because that's oftentimes the best thing you can do to get to that first milestone. So mm. more money in your pocket, get a job that pays you more, do a side hustle, do all that sort of stuff. Okay, so let's go to the next question, which is really interesting. I'll read this one out. Um, I think I can say it comes from Tim It's in the Facebook community. Tim says, "Hi all. My first post, and it's a question. Wonderful way to start. A company I invest in, in brackets, I am a very new investor and I'm still learning lots, close brackets, has made an, quote, announcement for quotation of securities, end quote. What is this for? Question mark. What would you want to know or infer from this kind of news slash announcement? A penny for your thoughts, please. Wonderful question, Tim. This is a quite a, it's a a kind of niche topic. Hmm. So, When you're new to investing, what you'll find is that when you go into your self-wealth Comsec, Perler account, whatever you're using, you'll go in there, there'll be a news or an announcements tab. You click on that and you'll see, oh, there's this thing here. It says announcement for quotation of securities or it say annual report or is a media release or quarterly. And it will sometimes have numbers next to it. It'll be like 4C, 4E, and it'll have like different numbers there. And maybe you can read Catherine's response, Kate, because that might be the best way to do it, what this actual announcement means. Some of them mean nothing. Some of them mean lots. This is one that's kind of, for me, I don't read it that often. I only check it if I'm really curious. But here's Mm -hmm. Catherine's response, as spoken by the great Kate Campbell.
1: Yeah, so Catherine, uh, one of our analysts at Rask Invest, who you may have heard in our earlier Disney investment podcast we did, Um, she said that an announcement for quotation of securities basically means that a company is issuing more shares. So if you think about a company being a whole pizza and shares being slices, when more slices are issued each, sorry, when more shares are issued, I've got pizza on the brain here, each (laughs) slice of the pizza becomes smaller because the pizza has to be split into more slices. So companies can issue shares for various reasons. The biggest one to note is a capital raising, and there would be a separate announcement for this. So if you're on your brokerage site or you're on the ASX website, you can actually have a look um, in the market announcements, and there might be an announcement called a capital raising. Or, and they're often
0: know. in a trading halt. That means that the shares mm. can't be traded at that time. So they do a capital raising at the time of a trading halt so that you would know if that's happening because you won't be able to trade your shares.
1: Another common reason is if the company acquires another business using equity shares, again, there would be a separate announcement about that acquisition. Mm -hmm. And she said the final common reason would be options being exercised, which is when management might meet performance hurdles and they get rewarded with shares. And again, you can find information about this in the annual report under under the remuneration section, which you can again find through your brokerage
0: um, account and market announcements or the ASX website. Mm -hmm. Cool. So this one in particular is about, um, I don't know exactly which company Tim owns here, but I would imagine it's about what I often see, to be honest, at least lately, a sign of the times is directors getting shares. So their options become shares. So then the shares have to be counted by the ASX, who says mm. this is the number of shares that are outstanding. We have to adjust that. Um, so that's what that means. The, this I saw a few of these earlier this month or last month in um, August 2021, and what I found was that the co- the company was just issuing shares to the management team, and it was issuing way too many. Um, normally, you don't need to worry about it, particularly if it's a big company. But some of these small cap companies tend to be very mm. generous with the shares that they give to their management teams. Which yeah. Some there's been a support.
1: lot of um, capital raisings and acquisitions this year, and so yeah, there's been heaps of them too. Yeah, yeah. I think Absolutely. it's it's just been the year for it. Everyone's had a bit of spare time to think about what, what their business is doing and if they want to take over another business
0: or raise some capital. Yeah, yeah. It is a it's a it's a great year for that sort of behaviour. Um, good or bad? Um, some people say it's the top of the market. Others say that it's um, a sign of a thriving marketplace. So mm. all good, all good. Great question from Tim. Um, next question is about the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF, VDHG, as it's commonly known, an ETF that I own. Kate, do you own this ETF?
1: No, I don't.
0: I, I have a diversified ETF
1: portfolio. So I do it a bit more manually, I guess, than having the one ETF
0: to rule them all. One ETF to rule them all sounds like a marketing pitch. Um so I just I love the... Lord of the Rings, but Oh, okay, here we go. Um But this isn't a good way, right? The one ring to rule them all was a bad thing. Um, So here we go. Yeah, I guess this is the opposite of
1: the the situation.
0: Yes, just in case you don't know, that's a Lord of the Rings reference. So, um, hi, Kate and Owen, or Owen and Kate. I'm 24 and new to Investing. That's less than two months. And After listening to your podcast, I decided to invest in my first ETF, in brackets, VAS, which is the VAS ETF, VAS, from Vanguard, for around 900 smackaroos. It seemed like a great entry-level ETF with low fees. I have now saved up another 1000 which I'm going to use to buy another ETF. After doing some research over the time saving, I saw, big surprise, VDHD seemed like a good option for me. VDHD is already 35% invested in VAS. So this is, for those who don't know... The VDHG ETF is a diversified ETF. So normally in an ETF, you would invest in the ETF and then that ETF would buy shares for you. The VDHG ETF actually buys other ETFs, which then buy the shares. So VDHG is 35% invested in VAS, which is invested in Australian shares. So I'm wondering if it is worth having both of these ETFs in my portfolio, or should I just choose one? I'm leaning towards VDHG, but I wouldn't want to sell what I have in VAS as I haven't held it for more than one year. To summarize, is it poor diversification to have multiple ETFs with this much crossover? Regards, Jack. So Jack, we can't answer your question to tell you what's right for your situation. I want to just make that clear. We're not answering. You've given us a lot of info about your situation and your goals and all that sort of stuff, which is delightful. We love that in the Facebook community, but Kate and I can't answer this question with regard to what you should do. So we're going to answer it just in general terms about what happens when you have ETFs that do the same thing, basically? And these mm-hmm. diversified ETFs are introducing that that question for a lot of people. So, Kate, any ideas?
1: Yeah. The first thing I want to say, it's fantastic that you're getting started early and actually doing the research. This is this is what we preach. So, it's fantastic to see. Mm. The first thing that I would look at is actually going into VDHD and looking at, looking at the makeup of that um, ETF because it has a lot of things that you might not have normally put in a diversified portfolio. So VDHG actually has uh, just over a 6% exposure to a small company's uh, ETF. And so maybe not everyone would put that into a diversified portfolio. It really depends on your approach. So I think firstly, if you are interested in VDHG or any of those other ETFs, like beta shares have a few that are pre-mixed, actually looking at what is is what is it holding inside and does that suit your own risk profile and your investment strategy because maybe you don't want emerging markets or small companies or bonds or hedging and VDHG has a bit of all of that it's a definitely like a fruit salad going on there fruit um, salad
0: yes indeed yeah, yeah
1: yeah so looking at what's inside it and is that the way you want to approach it Otherwise some people would build their diversified ETF portfolio with individual ETFs like VAS and a couple of others to make up. The or ethical portfolio. ETFs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the, I think you have a little bit more flexibility if you're buying the one Australian shares ETF, one international shares ETF, maybe a bit of emerging markets or small companies, and you can adjust the percentages depending on your risk profile, your view of the world, um, what yeah. different providers you want. So if It really depends firstly on like, do you want just one easy solution and are you happy with what's inside of it? Or do you want to have a bit more control over the weightings?
0: So I think this is like when you order HelloFresh and HelloFresh, if you're a meat eater, HelloFresh comes with a few lamb chops in in your meal. You've got salad, you've got some potatoes and you've got lamb chops. If you want to put more lamb chops on your plate, go ahead and do that just if you order HelloFresh, it's already in the box. So it's up to you if you want more of that. And Hmm. so when I look at this, what I think about personally, there are two things. One is I think about the complexity of it. Would it just be easier on me if I had one of them? The second thing is, um, is the allocation right for me? So maybe I don't, I don't eat meat, but maybe two lamb chops is not right for me. So I do want to add some more lamb chops on it, but I don't want all the other stuff that comes with it. I don't want extra salad. I just want more lamb chops. So I'm just going to add more VAS to my portfolio. So then if I took the whole thing overall and actually looked what I was investing, if I looked through the VDHG ETF and I saw that, oh, VAS is already 35%. So if I had 10,000 of VDHG, I would have in effect indirectly $3,500 of VAS already. If I then go and add another $2,000 of VAS in my brokerage account, that's $5,500 invested in VAS Mm. figuratively or like indirectly. So you're overweighting. So you might be overweighting for what you ideally want. So you have to weigh up your allocations. And so it all comes back to that. Do I feel comfortable with this? And is it the right allocation for me? And that's totally up to each individual person to answer. Obviously, if you add Mm. more shares, you're going to get more risk- and if you add more bonds, that's the that academic approach anyway. Um, yeah. I would say, you know, m- my personal approach is I own the A200 ETF, which is the beta shares A200 ETF. I've owned that for a few years. It's like a super low cost ETF, um, but I also own VDHG. But that's just what I've done. I don't want to sell VDHG or sell A200 because I'll pay tax. I'm just happy just to keep owning it, but nothing's mm. changed. It's just happy to keep with it. So I mean, yeah, we we can't answer your question specifically, Jack, but what I would just say is that it's it's about taking that whole mix into account. Um, We've talked in the past about having what we call a core portfolio. So maybe you want to build a core portfolio yourself like Kate does with individual ETFs, or maybe you want to build it with VDHG and then put all the other things around that. Totally up to you. One of the big questions that we got from our ETF members when we held a live session the other night was... Why do we go with VDHG over one of the ethical ETFs? That's a really good question too. If you're interested in ethical investing, you probably wouldn't be inclined to own VDHG, just as, a, as an aside. So great question, Jack. I wonder if mm. there was some- uh, The, we, the only on.
1: thing I wanted to add is just, it's a good idea to sort this out earlier on because yeah, it is. The, the tax issues with $1,000 look quite different to- a hundred thousand dollars, yeah, and so your your capital gains tax implications are going to be quite different. So sorting this out in your twenties and trying different structures and figuring out what works for you—it's a great time to do it while you're playing with small, fairly small amounts of money. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I never purely will make a decision because of tax reasons. If I want to sell a company, I'm not going to hold on for an extra two months just to. Um, have a reduction in capital gains tax. Like if it's the right time to sell, I'll I'll sell. But um, yeah, there are implications like if you have been holding for a long period of time. And I know there's like quite a few discussions in the FIRE community at the moment where people have built their ETF portfolio over 10 years, it might be quite substantial now. And now they're weighing up what is the capital gains tax going to look like versus BDHG where I could have a simplified solution. So it gets a lot more complex that discussion
0: okay. and there's a few different more pros and cons to weigh up i'd say in your first five years though don't like that's really important but don't overthink it too much sometimes mm. it's just better to get comfortable with what you have and sure you know in 10 or 20 years your five thousand dollar investment in whatever etf that you own could be twenty thousand dollars but if you if it's grown that much chances are the rest of your portfolio has grown as well and you've you've managed it along the way and you think oh, okay i've still got it i think the big thing that most etf investors aren't thinking about enough, and this is something that we had to think about when we designed the the model portfolios for our ETF service, was that you've got to be mindful that at the moment, fees on ETFs are going down generally. So some ETF providers are dropping fees. I think think all of the big ones have done it. Vanguard, Mm -hmm. I know ETF Securities did it. A few others have dropped their fees across the board. Um, But there might be a time when you don't see that happening. And so What the fees are today is really important. But as Kate said, if you go forward 10 years, which ETF provider is more likely to have lowered its fees between now and then as well? Because in 10 years, you're going to be paying less fees on a bigger balance. So Mm. that's also important too. I don't think enough people think about that. I think the FIRE community is kind of catching on to that now because they've got bigger balances. They're like, oh, Vanguard's dropped their fees. That's Mm. really good. But I have this beta shares one which hasn't dropped its fees At the time, beta shares were cheaper, but now it looks like this one's cheaper. You know, I'm just using those as examples, but you get get the idea. And as the
1: industry, the ETF industry just grows, like there's so much money just pouring in that companies will be able to start dropping their fees. And so it's really important to kind of stay on top of what the comparable products are to your current ETF and what the fees are and whether it's worth changing based on that. Yeah, and where they're going. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Cool. Okay. We've got a question from, from Mark. Yeah, I might read this one to you because uh, I'm sure it's something that you've come across many times throughout your last few years. All right, Mm, so this is from Mark over email, and it's all about share buybacks. Um, And he said, hi, team, with the recent announcement from CBA regarding a share buyback, I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk specifically about share buybacks in detail and would be curious to see um, what the implications would be on someone participating in a share buyback on sort of a lower income versus a higher income because he believes it's beneficial for low income earners and anyone in the higher tax brackets wouldn't benefit so
0: much from participating in a share buyback thoughts Mm. yeah cba has announced a big big buyback um i think it was like six billion dollars it announced so Mm. i know you kind of went into the weeds on this one so what is a buyback a buyback is when A company decides that instead of paying a dividend or as well as paying a dividend in this case, management and the board of directors have decided we've got, let's say, $6 billion and we don't know what to do with it. What we're going to do is we're going to offer to buy back everyone's shares. And so this is the reverse of what Catherine's response was before, where Hmm. a company was issuing shares. This company is buying back shares. And by buying them back, what they do is they buy them back. They give you money for your shares or some of your shares. And they cancel those shares, which then brings the number of slices in the pizza back down. So the so- company now owns more of itself. Yeah. Or you as shareholders now own more. It might only be a tiny little bit in your actual mm-hmm. scenario, but Apple's been doing this for the last five years as a company I own shares. And they've been buying back heaps. I think it's like hundreds of billions of dollars now they've bought back. And what that does is that forces the share price up. Because this comes back to the pizza analogy. If you have a pizza, and a $20 pizza, and you cut it 10 ways, that's $2 a slice. But if you have a $20 pizza and you cut it five ways, it's a $4 slice. So what they're effectively doing is they're saying, no, 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 no. We're, going to not, we're not going to cut it that many ways anymore. We're going to cut it fewer ways. And then it's going to push up the value of everyone's share. And so what happens when this actually takes place? Well, the company announces it. And then there are two different types of buybacks. There are off market and there are on market. And the question here was more around like the tax implications. So it really depends. Like a lot of, this is actually interesting. I hadn't thought about this in the preparation for today's episode, but a lot of people may own Commonwealth Bank shares from before the current capital gains tax system came into place. Mm. So they might actually- Especially own- your grandparents' generation. Your grandparents, mm. your parents may have got shares in Commonwealth Bank in the 90s, um, which, may have cha- which may change- the way you calculate your capital gains tax. So keep that in mind. The second thing is that it de- the amount of capital gains tax that you pay will depend on the, the price that the ATO says is the fair price for the sale. Um, and I know you did some um, digging into this and I've got the actual ATO website here. And basically in the case of an off-market buyback, um, there was an, there's a beautiful work example on the ATO website which we might refer you to. Um, basically, you may have to take the market value of the shares, not the actual price that you received. So if you sell your shares in the ATO example, let's say you sell your shares for $9.60, but the actual market price of those shares is $10.20, the ATO would actually take it as $10.20. So the market price. Um, and then you've also got to factor in a lot of these companies distribute franking credits when they do it. Franking credits are those wonderful things that we talked about at <laughs> the last election. Um, wonderful if you're on one side of politics and dreadful if you're on the other side. I can't believe that was an election debate. That was just anyway. Um, yeah, so you might get franking credits, which encourages you to sell your shares because mm. the franking credits reduce your tax. So if you're a high-income earner, the franking credits may be of great value to you because you might see this as an opportunity to sell some, but mm. what I would encourage anyone to do that's in this situation is go read the ATO example and just use their example with your numbers. Yeah. That's basically it. there's formula mm. there. you can just use their numbers with your example. Cause end of the day, Kate and I, you know, we're, we're not um, tax accountants. accountants. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, we have a, we have a tendency to lollygag and just have a bit of fun on the show when it comes to tax, but really, you should go and speak to someone who, hmm. who, as Kate would say, has a proclivity for these types of things. Um, yeah,
1: and there also yeah. Uh, there's another link that I'll put in the show notes, but the ATO often has special tax rulings for share buybacks. So they've hmm. got a whole page of just like a long list of different ASX-listed companies that have had special rulings for share buybacks. So you actually have to look at that document when calculating it and anyone, like I guess most people would use their accountant to, work that out but that's something to keep in mind as well it's not always um, exactly the same process Um,
0: it it might seem a bit cryptic though just go on there have a read of that document it's actually really helpful that they did do some examples um, Hmm. because things do change right so um, you know the examples allow you to adopt your situation into that and then give it to your give it to your tax agent that way question for you
1: do you think share buybacks are this is just off off topic here, Whoa, i know i'm, I'm creating my own question in the q a but okay. as an investor do you like when companies have share buybacks especially companies that you invest in or do you think it's a waste of capital that they could be using for research
0: and development mm. or something else Okay, it's good, good. good. Ooh, very political question. <laughs> very political question. Um, you know, I guess the the idea here is just to try and just I guess think about this through a few different lenses. So the first is like Commonwealth Bank's buying back six billion dollars of shares, right? Um, they're also paying a dividend. Fully franked, thank you very much. Now the thing is, the thing is that. You want the company to do with its money the thing that maximizes shareholder value. So if the company is sitting on $6 billion earning 0.5% interest, why don't they just give that back to the shareholders? If they can't invest $6 billion and get a good return, give it back to you and you'll go and invest it in something. That's fine. And I think that's a good reasonable way to think about it. In the USA, the mighty USA, they don't have franking credits. So that's why almost always companies in the USA have lower dividend yields because it's not as effective to give that money back because all of the shareholders pay tax on the dividends, even though the company's already paid tax on the profits. Whereas here in Australia, the ATO deducts the, the tax that the company's already paid, which is why we have franking credits. So in the USA, they tend to opt for more buybacks. But in the, over there, there's a massive hoo-ha about this because the big companies like Apple are buying back like a hundred billion dollars of stock, right? This is not a joke, a hundred billion dollars. And so what's happening is that the people are saying, well, you should be investing that in your community where you make money, reinvest for jobs and all that sort of stuff. Well, Apple's like, we are doing that, but we've still got money. So we're going to buy back stocks. And as an Apple shareholder myself, I actually like it because I don't want them to pay me a dividend that's going to be taxed to the hilt rather than just buy back shares. And that keeps the price of the shares on the market reasonable and it pushes the share price up over the long term. Now that's the capitalist side of me. Sure, I'd want them (laughs) investing in R&D, but only if that R&D is actually going to make something happen. Like Apple has so much money Mm. that for them to create a new Apple Watch, yeah, it's a billion dollars maybe in R&D, but they've got $120 billion. So they can't just create 120 different versions of watch, like they're not going to do that. So that that's as as a capitalist, I think they should be investing, they should be innovating, and they should be employing people. But at the same time, I think it's a it's unnecessarily political. Um, that's my view. You know, I just try and act with equanimity whenever I get thrown into a situation like this, and where it becomes really po- political. Just focus on the actual sense of it rather than just kind of get up in hysterics. But I think overall, yeah, it's, I like companies doing buybacks. I've never sold into a buyback. Like I've never, ever once sold my shares into a buyback. I've never agreed to sell my shares. I just prefer to keep holding them. Mm. What a crap
1: answer. I don't (laughs) don't know. It just seems like, like a company like CBA, that money could do a lot in terms of improving their technology and their products and their offerings
0: and, I don't know, upgrading but this is the their thing. services. <laughs> the thing is that a few years ago, CBA and all the big banks were basically told, no more acquisitions. So following the GFC, mm. you're not allowed to buy anyone else. You, you're already too powerful in Australia. You can't buy anyone else. So there was rules put in place. So now, now that CBA is selling a lot of its crappy businesses off to other companies that can take, take them, um, they're actually they're selling those businesses that they once bought to try and monopolize the market. And now they've got nothing else to invest in, so they really only have two choices: buy, um, buy another company, which they can't do. Give so give it back as dividends, or give it back as cap um, share purchase share purchases. One of the things that you mentioned is like technology, right? Again, this comes back to CBA. I don't know how the financials in front of me, but CBA is probably already investing half a mm. million dollars a year in in itself, and so they don't. You know, to create an app, you don't need half a million, half a billion dollars. You could do it with half a million, and so that actually isn't, in terms of moving the needle. They don't need that much money to do that. Mm. The only thing that they could really do is expand overseas. Which, if you look at like NAB or ANZ, yeah, we've had a pretty that's a atrocious
1: structure. track record trying yeah. to expand banks overseas in Australia.
0: Yeah, and so like you look at like in in. In fairness to CBA's, in CBA's defense, their apps actually are pretty good compared to the other banks. They're actually pretty good. Not like, I, I think like things like up Money are probably better. And I ING and all that, but Up, I mean, um, CBA CBA's still investing. It just doesn't need to invest that much more. Anyway. Mm.
1: No, that's... Sorry, Mark. I hijacked your question, but um,
0: yeah. yeah, Kate, next time, send it to the podcast <laughs> inbox and then we'll put I it. Should. Yeah. Or drop it in the Facebook community. <laughs> Um, but actually that's a really interesting topic if you think that share buybacks are good or bad you can let us know in the Facebook community or just hit us up on Instagram or Twitter and let us know what you actually think of them because I don't think they're a big deal but some people do there is a counterpoint to be made about these companies being so profitable particularly in the USA but um, yeah let us know what you think and um, you'll find importantly you'll find the show notes there which have the link to the ATO's website great yep. example on the ATO's website by the way one more thing I'll throw in the other day, um, I went on the ATO website and I didn't know this was a thing, but it's been going on for like five or six years, I think. The ATO every year publishes a personal investor tax booklet. And it actually takes you through all of the tax scenarios that you might come across. And it explains how you pay tax on dividend uh, dividends, how you pay what franking credits are. It explains how you pay tax on ETFs, when how to do things. Like it's got all these examples, like pages and pages of examples. If you have a tax question, Google ATO personal, I think it's like personal investor tax booklet. It's a PDF and it's, got, it's really easy to understand. And it's got. I, did, I was like, whoa, where has this been my whole life? I've been answering tax questions left, right, and center. And it's right here. Mm, um, yeah, so we'll definitely,
1: I'll, I'll find the link to that and put that in the show notes. They're going to be uh, pretty chunky today, but uh, hopefully they give people a starting point if they want to do their own research into these areas, which I would always recommend.
0: Yeah, that's it. It's always, it's, it's, yes, it is really good. So um yes, Kate, I think that's uh, that's it for today. Uh if people want to get in contact and send a question in, just again, how can they do that?
1: Yes, we're we're checking the emails a little bit more regularly now that we've got a producer on board, uh podcast at rask rask.com.au. Or if you want more immediate responses to your question, the Facebook community, which will be linked in the show notes because um, the q and A's only happen once a month. So you're much more likely to get a quicker response uh, and some resources to guide you in the meantime if you post the question in the Facebook community. And if it's uh, a popular question we haven't answered before, then we'll definitely put it into a future Q&A episode.
0: There are heaps of really, really smart people in our Facebook community. So... And it's actually, you know, we kind of have a no idiots rule in the Facebook group. So it's actually a really good environment to just ask beginner questions and ask intermediate and advanced questions too. So it's all kind of, you know, above the waist, kind of really good, um, full hearty thinking about finance and getting better as a community. So jump in there, say good day, ask your questions. And, and if you're happy for us to take a few of them for the podcasts and share them with the big audience. Please, we'd love that. So, Kate, as always, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses.
0: You can also join our online community